You know the scene. It's a large crowd. They're spreading their cloaks on the road in front of a man who's riding a donkey triumphantly into Jerusalem. Others are cutting branches from trees and throwing them on the road to cushion the footsteps of the donkey. The crowds are in front of him and they're behind him and they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You remember when we say that at Mass? Did you know that the word Hosanna literally means salvation? Salvation in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. And you remember the gospel says they said to one another, the people, who is this? Well, on Palm Sunday, or Passion Sunday as it's rightly known, we're the crowd. We have palms in our hand here at St. Mark's Church. The priest reads the gospel or the deacon reads it, and they walk up to the steps of the altar. At that altar, they offer the sacrifice of the body and blood and divinity of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the God-man. Psalm 118, in verses 26 to 28, describes a king entering the city of Jerusalem. By the first century, this psalm, Psalm 118, was seen as a messianic psalm. The king referred to in that psalm was the, the future king, the Messiah. Here's what the psalm says. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and has enlightened us. Join in procession with leafy branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I give you thanks. My God, I offer you praise. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. The new king of Israel entering triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem and approaching the altar. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem and approaches the altar of the cross. But it's Jesus's triumphal entry, ironically, that turns the chief priests and his other enemies in Rome and the Romans, against him. It all comes from the prophecy about the Messiah, the king arising out of the star of Judah. Even the Romans referred to it. The Roman historians Suetonius and Tacitus both refer to the prophecy of the Messiah in their histories. But they said, the two Romans, that the Jews were mistaken, that the true king of Judah would be the Roman emperor. But the Christians, they had their own understanding of it. Matthew's gospel presents Jesus' passion and death as the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah, that it is the new Exodus. Jesus is the new Adam or the suffering servant or the new Joseph. The welcoming of King Jesus with palms as he entered Jerusalem was the fulfillment of the prophecy amongst others and Psalm 118, and ushered into history the reign of God. And Jesus did change everything. So how does Matthew's gospel accomplish this? What are the unique elements of Matthew's gospel? And even more importantly, how does the passion of the Christ fulfill the Old Testament? This is Father John Arnold. This is Oral Valley Catholic. And we're going to talk about the passion of the Christ. Today in Oral Valley Catholic, I want to talk about some of the unique aspects of the Passion of the Lord as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. And so first, 
How is it that Matthew's gospel shows that Jesus is the new Moses leading all people on a new exodus? So think about this when you're listening to the passion story. Matthew's passion narrative emphasizes over and over again that the Last Supper was a Passover meal. It says right in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? His disciples asked Jesus. The Passover meal, as you remember, was the annual memorial of the deliverance of the 12 tribes of Israel from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. So on the Passover night, the lamb was sacrificed, unleavened bread was eaten, prayers were said, psalms were sung, and as the Passover meal was repeated year after year, it remembered how Israel was saved, set free by the action of God. Israel was redeemed, that is, bought back. They were delivered, taken out of slavery, and they began their journey home to the promised land, Canaan. And so when Jesus instituted the Eucharist, the Last Supper, in the context of the Jewish Passover meal, as Matthew says, he is inaugurating the new Passover. The old and traditional part of the Passover meal was all there. Jesus identified himself, however, in the middle of that Passover meal as the new Passover lamb. Do you remember he said, this is my body, this is my blood. That's what happens at Mass. We participate in that Passover meal that Jesus celebrated. The old Passover remembered the escape from Egypt to new life in Israel. The old Passover began in Egypt and ended in Jerusalem, in the earthly promised land. But it was a journey from Egypt to Canaan. The new Passover begins not in Egypt, but in Jerusalem, and ends not in Canaan, but in the resurrection and Jesus' ascension to heaven. And so here's another question. How does the Gospel of Matthew show that Jesus is the new Adam? That is, a new creation that human beings are made over in Jesus. Remember that when Jesus left the Passover meal and went across the Kidron Valley singing psalms, he entered the Garden of Gethsemane. The Hebrew for Gethsemane means oil press. So Jesus went over to the Mountain of Olives into the garden where they would press olives to make oil. And that's where his passion begins. Just like an olive is crushed, Jesus is crushed. Possibly Matthew emphasizes that Jesus' agony takes place on the Mountain of Olives and in the garden named after an olive oil press because in the first century there was an, an ancient Jewish tradition already that believed that the tree of life placed in the Garden of Eden was actually an olive tree. Makes sense. Olive oil was so essential to Middle Eastern culture and cuisine. Adam was tempted in a garden but fell. Jesus is tempted in a garden, but he doesn't fail. He doesn't fall. He overcomes sin by his trust and hope in God. Jesus dies that we might be restored to Eden. St. Paul explained this idea of the new Adam just like this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown corruptible, it is raised incorruptible. It's sown dishonorable, it is raised glorious, the body that is. It's sown weak, it's raised powerful. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, there's also a spiritual one. So too it is written, 
The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Jesus as the new Adam. Here's another aspect of the passion story that you may not have thought about. How is it that the Gospel of Matthew portrays Jesus in the passion as the prophetic suffering servant from the book of Isaiah? So Isaiah is a prophet. He wrote a book, or he and his followers wrote a book. And it says that when Jesus is arrested by the temple guard in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells his disciples that this must be so, so that scripture be fulfilled. That's in the gospel today, Matthew 26, verse 54. Jesus going to the cross, silent like a lamb. He doesn't say anything against his accusers. He's led to his slaughter like a lamb. He bears the spitting and the abuse of the soldiers and of the leaders in Jerusalem, just like the prophecies of the suffering servant had foretold. They're all pretty much at the end of Isaiah. But here's one. Recall Isaiah the prophet. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, knowing pain, like one from whom you turn your face, spurned and we held him in no esteem. Yet it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. By his wounds we were healed. Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 5. That's quoted again in the New Testament. It's very important to the early church because it's how Jesus understood himself. It's why he prophesied the necessity of his own crucifixion and death. And so the future leader would be the suffering servant. That's why the, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you have to serve. That figure is the Old Testament prophecy underlying Jesus's conquering of sin and death and his passion and death. Jesus will explain before and after his resurrection the necessity of his suffering and death. You cannot ever separate love and suffering. So here's another one. How is Jesus like the new Joseph? You remember that in Genesis chapters 37 to 50, the story of Jacob and his 12 sons is told. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. And you remember, because Donny Osmond starred in the movie, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor's Dreamcoat, that Jacob's favorite son was Joseph. And in book, the book of Genesis, chapter 38, it recounts how Joseph, the son of Jacob, the righteous and innocent son, is betrayed by his brother Judah, and is sold to the Gentile slave traders for 20 pieces of silver. Does this story sound familiar? Joseph, because he was favored by God, however, rose to be second in command in Egypt. He became Pharaoh's vizier. And when famine struck Canaan, the other 11 brothers went to Egypt to ask for help from the vizier of, of Pharaoh. But they didn't recognize that the second in command was their brother Joseph, who they had betrayed so many years before. Long story short. Joseph the vizier forgave his brothers, fed them, and the family was reunited in Egypt. Does this story sound familiar? About a betrayed brother going ahead of us to receive us into a heavenly homeland? Jesus is sold by Judas for 30 pieces of silver to the Gentiles, not 20. He enters the, Jesus enters the kingdom of heaven and waits for us. Now here's an interesting point. Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, in Hebrew, his name means Judah, the very name of the brother who betrayed Joseph. 
And so Matthew sees Jesus as the new Joseph. Well, here's another question. Why does Matthew tell us about Barabbas? I mean, Matthew's the only gospel that has anything there about Barabbas. Jesus, the Messiah, as you know, is a nonviolent Messiah. His kingdom is not of this world. Barabbas, on the other hand, was a zealot, a revolutionary, not against sticking a knife in the backside of a Roman soldier. Matthew goes deeper, however, than this, this comparison of a violent, nonviolent uh, Messiah. Matthew says that the name of Barabbas, he gives that name to this man because apparently it was his name, that that name in Aramaic literally means son of the father. Bar means son and Abba means father. Remember, Abba is the word Jesus uses when he teaches us the Our Father. But in certain manuscripts of Matthew's gospel that are still in existence, there is a first name for Barabbas, at least church tradition or the oldest tradition, who can say? But Barabbas' first name in those gospels is also Jesus. You see, the crowd wants the son of the father and it has two who claim to be the son of the father, Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus Barabbas. It's the nature of sin, that you know what you want, but you see it in a distorted way. And though you know what you want, you choose wrongly. So that's why it says that in Romans chapter five, that while we were still sinners, God had mercy on us. And so here's the story about that. Why does the crowd say his blood be upon us and our children? Well, you know, the Barabbas story is about uh, irony. The irony is they want the son of the father, but they just choose the wrong one. Well, about the crowd saying, let his blood be on us and our children is also about irony, that they get exactly what they ask for, although they don't understand what they're asking. That's what irony is. The people want the son of the father. They want the blood to be upon them. It needs to be said by the way, this thing about this blood being upon us and our children, this has really been misused in Christian history to justify the persecution of the Jews. Uh, that has been condemned by the church explicitly, especially since the Nazi atrocities against the Jewish people. And we have to look at uh, Christian tradition uh, unsentimentally and understanding how some of our biblical traditions have created uh, really, the Holocaust. It's been a, it's been a part of the, the ground that that grew up in, and so the uh, the understanding, the correct way to understand the scripture, and you have to understand it like this, is that Christ died for all of us, uh, Jew and Gentile. If he didn't die for all of us, if we didn't all put him to death through our sins, then we have no place in having his blood upon us. And if we have no place in having his blood upon us, we have no right to the baptism to respond to his call. We're all guilty of his death. Pope Benedict pointed this out. He wrote a book, Jesus of Nazareth, especially about the passion narratives. And here's what Pope Benedict said. When in Matthew's account, the whole people say, his blood be on us and on our children, a Christian will remember that Jesus's blood speaks a different language from the blood of Abel. It does not cry out for vengeance and punishment. It brings reconciliation. It's not poured out against anyone. It's poured out for many and for all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God put Jesus forward as an expiation by his blood. Well, read in the light of faith, it means that we all stand in need of the purifying power of love 
which is his blood. These words are not a curse, Pope Benedict says, but rather redemption, salvation. Only when understood in terms of the theology of the Last Supper and the cross, drawn from the whole of the New Testament, does this verse from Matthew's Gospel take on its correct meaning. And that's from page 187 to 188 of Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week, from the entrance into Jerusalem to the resurrection. So the irony, we're all washed and saved by the blood of the new Passover lamb. God first loved us while we were still sinners, St. Paul says in Romans 5, by calling for Jesus's blood to be upon them and their children. The crowd was calling for salvation through the very scapegoat they were putting to death. It was, in fact, a true sacrificial offering offered by that crowd and offered by Jesus. Not all the crowd didn't understand it at the time, but Jesus did. As Christians, we all want Jesus' blood to be upon us and upon our children because we are all responsible for the crucifixion and the death of Christ. We find salvation through his blood. One final piece. Why is the hill that Jesus is... Uh, executed on, called Golgotha. Remember, it's also called Mount Calvary. Well, there are multiple traditions why Matthew calls it Golgotha. Possibly it was a place where executions just generally occurred. Uh, Romans weren't shy about executing people. Maybe they just did it in that one place all the time. Uh, possibly, another tradition, it's the place where the heads of decapitated Romans were displayed. Uh, that practice went on long after the fall of Rome. Uh, the English displayed poor St. Thomas More's head on London Bridge after they decapitated him, and Bishop John Fisher also. And, or it could be one other tradition, is that this hill looks something like a skull. Nothing's known for sure, can't really know, but Golgotha means the place of the skull. Some church fathers said, however, that Golgotha was called so because it was the place where Adam was buried after his death. In fact, on some Eastern church icons, you'll see Jesus suffering and dying on the cross, and beneath him are the figures of Adam and Eve or the graves of Adam and Eve, because Jesus's uh, saving power goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Did you know that in the Eastern church, the Orthodox church, on their liturgical calendar. We both have saints. We all have St. Augustine, I think, and St. Basil, some of the shared saints. But they also have saints from the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. So they'll have Moses and Elijah and Abraham. In Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, in the part called the Paradiso about heaven, who's all there right next to Mary? The great women of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, I think sometimes we lose that modern Catholicism by how we do things, but it is our ancient tradition. And so in a moment, a conclusion, and I'll bring this all to a, I think, a fitting end. So we're entering Holy Week, and in so many ways, this time of year, Holy Week, is at the center of the liturgical year because the mystery of suffering, of the death and the resurrection of Christ are what Holy Week really makes us take time to think about. When you read Matthew's account of Jesus's final moments of agony, you heard him say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
God doesn't abandon us, whether there's a coronavirus pandemic or we're dying on a cross. And so we have no cause for despair. It's a time to show great hope in God. If God can bring goodness out of the crucifixion, he can bring goodness out of our own struggles at this time of our life in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. And so I know people can feel alone, but this is why Jesus on the cross, it's a, such a great moment for contemplation on what, how he felt and what he thought, because we can enter more into that experience of the cross as we think about the, what we're going through right now. So did Jesus despair when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is no. Psalm 22, read the whole Psalm. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can count all my bones. My enemies revile me. It's about all the tortures of a man. But by the time you get to the end of Psalm 22, it is a Psalm of great hope. God arises. God comes to the rescue of his servant and the people are saved and all the pagans are converted and all the people of the world are joined into one. And that is exactly what happened after the crucifixion. Isn't it absolutely amazing that the Christian religion grew because of the very people that ran away from Jesus at the cross. They became very aware of their own sins and as such were able to bring this gospel, this saving mission that reaches out over space and time to Oro Valley and the coronavirus pandemic. I want to close this meditation with the words of Psalm 22, which we read at Mass on Palm Sunday. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? All who see me scoff at me. They mock me with parted lips. They wag their heads. He relied on the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he loves him. Indeed, how many dogs surround me. A pack of evildoers closes in upon me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them, and for my vesture they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far from me. O my help, hasten to aid me. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the, of the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, give him glory. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus died as I hope we all do, with hope in our Father. This has been another episode of Oro Valley Catholic. God bless you this week.